Welcome to EK on the Go, a podcast bringing together people who are creating, preserving, and celebrating places in the Puget Sound area. We have made it to our second episode, a big milestone in the world of podcasting, and I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest. I'm Edward Kriegsman, and I promise you a lot of delicious moments today because we'll be exploring Seattle through donuts, pizza, and liquor. My guest today is Michael Klebeck, co-founder of many significantly adventurous businesses and places in the greater Seattle area. He's been intelligently shaping Seattle through flavors, aromas, and design for many years. Whether you are in Seattle or venturing over to the east side, you'll find his very flavorsome creation, Top Pot Donuts, in 18 locations. There's Mod Pizza, another wonderful enterprise and a national chain. They recruited Michael for his visionary touch to help put their business on the map. There's Zeitgeist, the old Bauhaus in Capitol Hill, you may remember. Also, the Taste and Sense of Sun Liquor, another of Michael's culinary and place explorations. They've been distilling many favorites here in our own backyard. Today, we'll focus on the role of design in anchoring people to places, the art of blending the old with the new, how food and wine and pizza is shaping our city, and Michael's concept of branding. Those of you who are listening might want to stick around all the way to the end because we'll give you a chance to get something in your hands that will be very delicious. So welcome, Michael. Thank you so much. So who are you? You're from Lakewood, Washington. Uh-huh. So you know I'm from Tacoma, right? Yes. Yeah, so... It was Tacoma back then. It was. Lakewood Center is sort of the official designated name, but then it became Lakewood and incorporated into the city. But I was long gone before then. But it was beautiful. I, I loved it, like? it. When you think back when you're a kid, you see it in a different way. They say never go back to where you came from because mm-hmm. you might not think it's so great, which is probably true. But as a child, there was this beautiful, many lakes around Stillicum Lake and Gravelly Lake and American Lake, a lot of areas to explore like woods and creeks. So spent a lot of time, you know, in those areas. I know there's a lot of underlying crime and issues with the city, but I didn't see it as a child. It It was fun. We had the ability to have a certain amount of freedom. We biked around. There was a park just down the street from where I grew up called Active Field. And it was kind of at the end of a horseshoe. So we lived on this, think of a horseshoe and then kind of the spike going into the horseshoe. We lived on the spike. And so the park was where all the kids congregated. And there was some areas that you could explore. And apart from playing baseball there almost daily and football, there was just a great feeling of community and especially with my friends. And there was this shopping center close by called the Villa Plaza. I remember that. Which is now Lakewood Town Center. It had gone through a a phase of becoming a mall. But I didn't know it back then, but I think I was greatly influenced by the structures. It was sort of open breezeways, probably similar to what you see in the University Village now. Mm -hmm. You'd have some national stores there. There was a Grant's department store and a Woolworth's. One of my first jobs was to take my bike down there with uh, my brother and we would ask people if we could wash their windows. And so it was- Formative. Yeah. It turned out, I didn't know this, that it was developed by a company from Beverly Hills. And so it had that sort of mid-century aesthetic and that's all we kind of knew, but it definitely has impacted my aesthetic and design decisions because it had a very special place, just being able to take your bike and go down there and, and look at the stores. So it was, it was a pretty fun place. You know, it's great that you bring it up. I love the design of it. I never really registered. The last time I was there was my grandmother who had passed away since, but that was my last visit. We had lunch there years ago. Wow. Um, of course, down the street on South Okamoya is the B&I Circus Store. Yeah. With Ivan the Gorilla. I- <laughs> 
I had gone there a few times. That was a little, a little know, different aesthetic. A little dirty. <laughs> to hobgoblin. But it, but it had a great history. Yeah. And, and we explored parts of Tacoma, but going to Tacoma downtown was a big trek. So we stayed local. We go fishing in the lakes. We'd go, you know, swimming in the summertime. And it was one of those places where when you thought of like Tacoma or Seattle, it was like big deal. I remember we'd go to the Seattle Science Center and, and the Space Needle occasionally and maybe like once every couple of years. And it was a big sort of experience. But being the last of eight kids, all the kids starting with when I was born would make the trek to Seattle and start college. Okay. So it was sort of a natural progression to leave the small town and explore and spread your wings a little bit. And there's no top pot in Lakewood. No, there was a... <laughs> There was a Lakewood House of Donuts. It had been around since the 60s. And we used to go there occasionally. They had a little drive-through. And I remember that. They had a McDonald's that was, back then, had, was more like an outside, like a Dick's hamburger. Uh-huh. You, know, you go up to the window. And there was an A&W. There was some cool 50s, 60s styling of the restaurants and little fast food places, which definitely later on influenced me. So one of the things about Top Hot I just wanted to bring up is our five-year-old Abraham goes to school across the street. And pretty much every day he asks when I pick him up, can we go? either to the library or to Top Hot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of a negotiation and usually one well, or two days a week he wins and usually he doesn't. But yeah. But one of the things that, you know, I think is noteworthy is that when I go in there, there's always a lot of kids. And so yeah. I was wondering, you know, what is the, for you, what is the role of sort of your childhood or just childhood in general in the formation of kind of a place that where kids really want to go? Well, part of it is not making it too serious. It's real easy to go the route of, you know, this is really precious and it can become intimidating at that point. Wedgwood in particular had a homage to Los Angeles with the giant donut on the roof and the twin palm trees crossing. And it had kind of this outside vibe. I wanted it to be sort of an oasis. And we thought in Wedgwood, this could be kind of a nice little, so it was an old gas station that okay. was converted. And my brother and I, we poured terrazzo floors. We brought those palm trees in from Northern California, 30 foot tall windmill palms that do well here. They were brought up. I was in the ditch when they were lowered in by nest cranes because I wanted to make sure they were positioned because the goal was for them to cross. When they first set them down, one started to tip over to the building and they jerked it back. But I was trying to stabilize them because I wanted it to look like they had been there for a long time. And again, this vintage styling, which appealed to me. I know for like kids coming in, they probably like the giant donut on the roof and the palm trees. You don't see that too often. Part of it is, okay, the cost involved in that design decision. Scott from Mod Pizza, Scott Svensson, who's the owner there, he and Allie, he had this, I would say, some kind of theory about the cost analysis of something like that. It's a cost to put it in and what value do you get from it? And he saw the results that it was, was something that you could say, hey, this is meaningful. Even though when you're building it out, it's like, oh, it's outside, it's a plant. It's not rentable square feet. No, but those are things that... You know, when you're talking about building a brand and the awareness and having children look at it, I always go back to the kids because they're looking at it with a clean slate. And so when they appreciate it, you know you have something special because they're seeing something completely without bias. They're pure. They're able to see things. I love that aspect of design that you can cross generations with good design. So how does that work with adults? Are you looking to also sort of create a space for adults to experience things like children not, in a fresh not, way? or Not really. Part of it 
just the go-to of what I feel is good design and then what I guess speaks to me. I know it doesn't speak to everyone, but I will say that subconsciously people get it. Mm -hmm. And even though they might not say, oh, I understand it, or they might not remember something, it's all inclusive part of the conceptual and the and the branding that you're creating. So you have a BA in fine art from the University of Washington? Yes. And you have studied design, photography, and architectural history? Yes. And then you also worked as a barista? Right? I worked as a barista. At a local coffee shop? I worked uh, at, when I was at the school at the U, I was, I'd work summers at the Mason shop at the University of Washington. So where did all that flow into your entrepreneurship, being a student of design? At the U, I started in pre-engineering and quickly realized that I wasn't going to be happy. And so actually, after my first two years there, I took off to California and lived in West LA for two years. And it was nice just to have a different change of scenery. The architecture down there, it was so much different. And it really spoke to me in a way that I saw similarities with where I grew up in Lakewood because there was that mid-century and architects like even Frank Lloyd Wright had some houses that he built in Lakewood. And there was a preservation that was going on there, which I really appreciated. And people like architects that were put on sort of like Richard Neutra, who had houses all through the area in the canyons. And it was just something that when I came back, I was like, you know, I really want to follow sort of that design architecture idea of finishing school. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I pursued that. The love of design was in my heart always. Mm -hmm. And I could go back to when I was a kid and, and I saw things differently in a way that I could tell that, okay, I'm looking at things in a design oriented way. And I felt like if I could follow the lead on that, so there was Professor Punt from the architecture here at the UW who was basically more of a preservationist and taught classes on history and preservation. So I'd sign up for a, every course that he could teach. And that influenced me while I was going to school at the fine arts department and being able to learn about lithography and photography and design. My favorite courses were in design, in 2D and 3D design. And I felt like I could have sort of a understanding of creating brands and, and all that sort of kind of came together. So it sounds like it was always very natural from childhood forward. You really didn't have to sort of figure out what you're going to be when you grow up. No, I felt I was happiest. When my first year in college, I was elected the social chairman of my fraternity and I was able to put on parties and events and you're given a budget and you had to create sort of this space. And I really liked it. It wasn't just like, oh, let's start drinking. And it was more about, okay, I'm going to put a lot of effort into the space, creating these little special moments that people will remember. And so that's sort of how I thought, wow, I could create spaces maybe in more of a kind of a retail environment and have people appreciate it and then combine the commerce part of it. Mm -hmm. So the art and commerce was important aspect when I left school, how I kind of started it on my path. And is the commerce sort of a necessary evil? In other words, are you just basically wired to create spaces that are just really memorable and that commerce is a way to not justify it, but to sustain it? Definitely to sustain it, but also to have another opportunity to create a brand and have it, you know, walk out the door. Right, have legs. And, yeah, and have people see things in a way that, you know, I'm a big advocate of the packaging part of it and how that translates to the design and commercial aspect. I'm hearing two things. One of them is just design, the purity of design and sort of how it wraps into the experience of a place. And then there's also the memory and history of a place maybe before you touched it or... Yes. Right. And then yeah. also its future. And it seems like a lot of the design that you're really attracted to was from the past, but it also envisioned the future in a way because of yeah. the materials and... 
There, there's, of- yeah, I would say the, I love the vintage aspects of old buildings. I feel that there was an integrity that sometimes gets lost now in the present. When I see materials or old buildings that can be crafted with a new experience, that's always, one, it's a challenge, but it's also, it can bring to life something very special when you do it just right. For me, I go into a space and part of it is you want the space to kind of tell you maybe the story. Most places you go into, they've been covered up with something, either in the inside, mostly on the inside, but sometimes on the outside. I love stripping those back and then being able to utilize the integrity of the original design and create the space. That's why a lot of the spaces I'm involved in usually don't have HVAC exposed. I like the idea of having it as a, you know, take away that industrial part and maybe allow the space to be what it was originally. Can you give like an example of that? The original Sun Liquor Lounge on Summit. We had a space that was kind of dark. We actually cut in some sawtooth skylights into it, not only to allow light in, but the idea was to kind of envision this open space because it was, I think, like 11 foot high ceilings. And so instead of putting a natural idea would be to just put the exposed ductwork, you know, on the ceiling. Okay. And for us, it was like, okay, let's utilize this space in between the sleepers of the roof and then the ceiling lid and create and utilize, even though it was a lot more work to be able to run the ductwork through there and create the space though, so that you had this beautiful look. And again, these are small little choices, but the details were really important. And then you utilizing the sawtooth skylights as a buffer to open up the space even more because we are changing it a little bit from what it was. But it was an expense, but it created the look and feel that we were going for. So that's a very meticulous attempt to work with a space that people may not even notice yeah. if they don't look up. With uh, handheld devices now, most people are actually looking down. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yet you put a lot of care, <laughs> right, into that space. And so... It's, um, it's important for me to make sure I don't take too many shortcuts. I mean, there's always shortcuts you take. I mean, with PEX in particular, with the water system, uh-huh. I guarantee you... You heard it first. That is going to be recalled one day. Okay. And they're going to have to rip it out of every single house and building. The copper suppliers will be overjoyed. Well, copper is one of those, it's expensive. It takes a lot of effort. It looks much better, even in the wall. And I don't know, maybe the pecs will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going for copper. But it's one of those things where I always try to build for permanence, not like, oh, It's going to be obsolete in 20 years. I'm always thinking about that. It's hard in Seattle in a way because you know the buildings, unless it's been protected, it's probably going to be raised at some point sooner than later. So that's a tough one. But you still want to bring the beauty out of a building. I think it does so much for the community and the city at large and just for humankind. A story to tell, Sun Liquor on Summit. Yeah. It was a New Year's Eve probably 10 years ago, and my wife and I had no place to go. We live up in North Seattle, but we made the drive to Capitol Hill, and we spent the evening there. It's an incredibly beautiful space. Thank you. you The the artwork. Yeah, the the, Venetian plaster. The Venetian plaster. Did you have the eggnog? I don't recall. I think we probably (laughs) did. But we met an old friend, too, someone I rarely see, Robin, who was also there. Okay. And we ended up having a really nice conversation, a very long evening, and it was a very special moment. So it was a beautiful and memorable place. Thank you. You hear a lot of these stories come up occasionally, and I'm so happy that people appreciate it. And those are heartfelt stories. It was very grassroots and not advertised as as to be the new hip kid on the block. It was meant to have this feeling of just like, let it flow over you gently. 
Reminds me of, I lived in Chicago for five years. I was at the Art Institute. I studied painting, actually. I lived in Northeast, kind of in Ashland and Grand and uh, Wicker Park area. And there was a tiny little jazz club. It was called the Get Me High Club. It'd been around (laughs) probably for 60 or 70 years. Yeah. And the bigger jazz performers would go there after hours and play just to a... Impromptu. Yeah, and it was yeah. a very small little box, and it was mostly neighbors. Burrowed into a railroad track. I wonder if it's still there. Oh, Probably wow. Is. So, anyhow, that, but that yeah. reminds me of what we were trying to do at the Trace Lofts building. It was going to be called Gun Club, uh-huh. and this little jewel box stage. It was going to be, I wanted it to be a punk band venue. And, you know, we had the roulette wheel. I got lighting from the church I go to. They were doing a changeover. I was like, I'll take them. <laughs> so those, I don't know if they're still there, but that was the envision on that. Just kind of little- a Speakeasy. Im- yeah, just yeah. but just something where you could get up on a little platform and do your thing. I thought it was going to be pretty neat. That's where I got to meet you. That was great. Yeah, we that was, worked on that project that together. That was great. The Stranger describes Sun Laker as every detail scrupulously aligns. Can you talk about sort of alignment and integrity and design? And well, part, or, do you, or do you agree with that or disagree? I appreciate what they say. I think it's definitely was our intention. I don't go into it trying to do that. It's more just like, okay, let's make sure we're doing all the steps correctly. And for that space in particular, it was fairly easy because we had a great space to work with. And I wanted the place to look like it had been there forever. The people across the way, Kitty Corner, they had a little market and they were giving away the Coca-Cola came to them and said, hey, we're going to give you new coolers. And so they were going to throw out their 1940s three-door glass refrigerator. And I was like, I'll give you 50 bucks for that. (laughs) He's like, okay. And we had it restored. We had a new compressor put in and it became the centerpiece behind the bar. Those are things that fell in with the neighborhood. I'm like, I always thought it was neat that, oh, this refrigerator has been here for that many years. It'd be cool to preserve it and restore it. At the beginning of that whole craft cocktail craze, we really wanted to push the, the hand squeeze juices and everything really done very organically. Eric Chapman, who was the first person we hired, he was working at the donut shop next door. He was definitely someone who I liked instantly because he had this no attitude effect. And I didn't want it to be a slick bar. I mm-hmm. wanted it to be, I wanted my mom to feel comfortable there. Yeah. And so that was part of it's building that culture and then creating the drinks and the spaces and the lighting is always super critical. And then having local artists do their thing, you know, like uh, Tina Randolph doing the Venetian plaster work with an old firecracker logo, which kind of became our branding at that point. Mm-hmm. And when we started distilling, sort of came into that. Why a firecracker? When I was a kid, my baseball coach had found this brick of firecrackers. And I just love the packaging. It's like the graphics. I think it came when you talk about lithography and photolithography, which I studied at school. I was always trying to recreate that effect. In fact, when it would come to graphics later on and I was doing packaging, the printers would go crazy because they wanted everything perfect. Mm. They wanted everything encapsulated. And I was like, no, we want it to look like an old screen print off registration. We want it to look old and I call it the old catcher's mitt effect where it feels just perfect okay. and you don't want to buy a new catcher's mitt because mm. this old one that's been around for decades is perfect. The leather's worn. It's like fits your hand perfectly. So that was the effect I've always been wanting to go with. So comfort is like a really big theme for you. Yes. Right? The comfort and, of that mitt in your hand or the space yeah. around you. And not having anything look too perfect. One of the little show and tell pieces I brought is the 1929 yearbook from the UW. And I brought it because not only the details 
and something that you would never see today, but the hand engraved artwork and the lithography and the fact that, you know, there's a lot of artistry put into that for a one year sort of memory of the University of it's Washington. Incredible. incredible. But those are things that they have, I think, an artistic styling that you want to keep them. In fact, one of the stories we had when we started doing Top Pot, we had been with Starbucks for a few years during this wholesale project that we did with them. And the first time we made these little logo boxes, and of course they were more money than just putting them in a plastic sleeve and shipping them. But I always said- Logo boxes for the donuts themselves? Yeah, Okay. little four pack. And they were really cute and we played around with colors. I would take the boxes home each night and stamp them like what flavor it was inside. It was either a double trouble or a old fashioned. And we were just doing locally like Centralia through Bellingham. But it was important for me to have our brand. And so these logo boxes, the baristas loved them so much because they weren't supposed to do this, but they felt so, this was so special. And they basically would make shrines and displays at stores with these boxes. And I was like, without even thinking of it, it was just something that in my heart, I felt like, okay, we want to do this. This Mm -hmm. is going to create value in someone's life. And it could be the person at the distribution center who's like going, whoa, these are kind of cool, you know, and maybe they're protecting them a little bit more than just throwing them. Those are things that I always go back to. It's like you can't see every single aspect of the value that the design brings, but it's definitely making someone's life happier and better. I learned a lot from Jim Goldberg, one of my colleagues who yeah, you yeah. may have met. But you know, a lot of people throw around the notion of brand as a logo or a kind of a look. Yeah. And Jim, who worked at Nordstrom's as an executive, would always inculcate it in him there was that brand is the experience that people have physically, tangibly with an organization or a store, yes. or it's it's really the experience of yeah. every person. Yeah. Right. It's so true. And it's yeah. it it's almost it becomes a spiritual thing in a lot of ways. You hear a lot about brand loyalty and what brings people back. And a lot of times it's like, oh, we'll print these cards and kind of force them to come back and use them and get points or whatever. Beyond that, I feel the value and the return of customers goes way deeper than that. And it's like, why do people go to this place? Why are they parking and spending their money and time here? And that's where there's so much potential out there. And people, I think, forget in a way it's so easy, but it's also very elusive. Seattle's changing so much. And with that, a lot of new people are coming in. Yes. And so on our roots, we're both relatively old timers. Yeah. Our roots are being kind of loosened up. You mentioned the buildings that are being torn down. You could invest a lot in making a place really beautiful and special, but yeah. the zoning may dictate a different outcome. First secret, strip down the windows, take out the argon filled glass. It's one of those little things. I hate giving away my secrets, well, but it's true. It's like you take away the glass. That's the first thing. After the inspector signs off, you put in tempered, clear, no fog or no tint to it. That's number one. I would say that going into a new building is challenging because you're trying to, it's scary because sometimes making a decision even before the building's done, and then you're having to try to understand what the building wants. And so that's difficult. So in a way, it's easier to go into a new building that's already done, and then you can kind of do your thing. But a lot of building owners, they want the canopy to be 
homogenous with their neighbors and, you know, the trace loss building. One of the reasons I really didn't want to even do it at the end, they weren't going to let me put a neon sign out. And I was like, this is a 1920s building. Just for the viewers that don't know what the trace lofts is, in the Pike Pine Corridor, it's a 1920s historic terracotta facade loft warehouse building that was converted into residential loft condominiums in the early 2000s. And Michael worked uh, as a consultant on the retail spaces. Yeah, little showroom. And then the showroom was going to be converted into a little boutique bar. But the idea was, okay, we need a neon sign, you know, it doesn't have to be flashy, but it just kind of speaks to the era. But it became, it's one of those things where I get it. It's like building owners have to contend with the neighbors above. I always thought it was kind of cool to have a neighbor whose window opened up to a cool neon. Anyone who's watched but, film noir films, you know, from the 40s and yeah. 50s, you always have to have the neon sign yeah, flashing. Yeah. Especially in Seattle, it's changing. It needs, I said this in that interview we did back in the day is that I liked what I saw in Portland, mainly because I felt like there was a time gap of when they had the ability and the financial whereabouts to start developing. And that was delayed to a point where there was this new idea, hey, we can preserve this. This is our history. Let's preserve it. And what you're referring to is at working on Trace Loss, we took a field trip down to Portland together with a developer client and yep. toured the Pearl District yep. and looked at the way in which retail spaces yeah. were kind of unfolding. And it, it seems scalable to the point where it was friendly to a human being, where sometimes in Seattle, it's so vast and so high, it becomes, it's hard to understand. It's hard for me to understand sometimes. I go to Capitol Hill and you're gone for a week and you turn the corner and it's like, it's something new and something that you don't necessarily understand. The dirt's worth the money, right. obviously. Sure. So I get that. <laughs> and to pay, you know, true effect, we're in a small little period of time, but this was all indigenous people's land and native area where I think it's one of the things that when you we're asking one of my favorite places. It's actually not the buildings. It's the areas kind of between the buildings, the trail systems that you could say from Ravenna going through Interlochen and creating the space through Lake Washington and even parts of the Arboretum and University of Washington campus, where you see a little different side. You huh. see this natural area that has been here for so long. I love that because it feels protected and that people can't mess with it and developers can't take advantage of it, even though some try to. I know the previous podcast, Magnuson Park, was a big highlight, which is beautiful. And I love the fact that that's there. And I feel that sometimes going in these trail systems and you can see old buildings and old houses that are incorporating into those hillsides. And that's interesting too, because you see things that you wouldn't normally see. When I was living in Los Angeles, one of my favorite things I'd do is go down alleys in some of these places like in Beverly Hills or Brentwood and see the back areas of these beautiful homes mm -hmm. and how that intersects with the streets and what most people see. I love that. So, well, one of the things I think in design is obviously the space around images and in sort of the West, we tend to focus more on the object itself and yeah. in other cultures, the design, a true understanding of this measuring the design out from the edges. Yeah. And so it looks yeah, like- seeing, you know, seeing it in a different way and then appreciating the details that someone would spend a certain amount of effort with a fence or the way that the area that, and it becomes definitely dear to them because it's their space. So they're creating this oasis, but it's a little glimpse into that and, and going on these trails and being able to walk the trails and how those trails intersect with the streets and how like the Burke Gilman, the way it's 
It's one of the oldest trails in the United States. And the fact that it's still existing is pretty amazing. It's a treasure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously that has way more visibility and, and use, but these natural trails that come through like the Ravenna Ravine and then going down through the Ship Canal and then coming up through the old north part of Capitol Hill is pretty amazing. And spend days in searching and investigating and becoming just so much interest there. We've talked a lot about design and place, but also food and drink is important to you. Yeah. And craft seems to be the theme that unites both the spaces that you make, whether yeah. it's craft by people in terms of these retail spaces, but then the food and drink and so forth that are purveyed there is also crafted in a way. And so yeah. can you talk about that? Yeah. And I have this box of donuts here as a visual reference if you want it. <laughs> well, part of it for... And the boxes, by the way, just as beautiful as the donuts. Yeah. Thank you. That was meant to be... <laughs> <laughs> Notice the little stamp on the side? That stamp was... It says Top Pot Circus Big Top Pot C-1800. So what's that about? Well, it was more of a idea to catalog as if, I mean, it's on every box. That's a six-pack box, but the 12-pack box has a different stamp. But the idea was, oh, it's something you would have the human element of a stamp on the side of a box cataloging what is in there. So totally subtle, right? I would never have consciously noticed that. You would. Part of what I love about the food and beverage as well as creating the space, I love the art and commerce combination, which we spoke about, but I also like the industrial design aspect of creating a package or having a machine make something. I think the donuts became, for us, it was a way for us to separate ourselves out from all the coffee places that were growing, as well as spoke to the aesthetic of the mid-century sort of Americana effect. And I like the fact that they're made by, with the help of a machine. So I love the idea of an old machine creating something that could be part and parcel of the this gourmet experience just doesn't have to be kneaded by hand. But I love the element of something that's cast and plugged in. I mean, I love it. And I think that there's some machines in Europe that have never seen the light of day in America. And there's this machine called the Galileo. What's the Galileo? Galileo is a... It's a hollow body chocolate spinner. It basically makes hollow bodied chocolates like Easter eggs. And it spins like basically the sun being the center of the universe. And Galileo, of course, was the one who was almost killed because he mentioned that. So it's a spinning mechanism that spins with these arms. Think of it as a carnival ride you'd see in Lakewood Villa Plaza on a summer day in 1973, where it spins and then each little pod that's on the end spins separately. What you're doing is you're creating this force of the chocolate spinning outside of this enclosure and trapping itself on the sides. And then you open it up and you have this hollow Easter egg. That Galileo machine, if a child saw that, they would not forget it. If the child walked into a place and saw a machine like that, it would be an epiphany in a lot of ways. And you could say, well, they see it and it's done and it's that's it. But to a lot of people, that's magical. So the donuts appealed to me because I was like, okay, it's cool machinery. Yep. We didn't even know how to make donuts. I just like the, the machines look cool. So as I understand it, one of the legends is that you got a bunch of old donut machinery and then yeah. that, that was the genesis of yeah. wanting to sort of sell donuts and make them. So we had started Zeitgeist Coffee down in Pioneer Square and this was going to be a second Zeitgeist. So we have a neon sign that came from an old chop suey restaurant down in Genesee neighborhood, which is as you go down Rainier Avenue. And the business was gone. There's a place that sold meat next door and so he Genes owned the sign. And Genesee neighborhood was, was that like Garlic Gulch? I believe so. 
the old Italian yeah. neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. It's it was south of where the old Six Stadium. Yeah, and so the sign was really cool. It had three dimensional letters, and it said Top Spot. And we had taken the sign. I had stored it up on a roof just a block away, literally behind the El Monterey. Okay. I was renting a garage, and I put it on top of the garage, laid flat, and it sat there for five years. And we took it to my mom's because the landlord was mad that it was going to ruin his roof. So we dragged it, and things like twenty five feet long. And I took it to my mom's, put it in her backyard behind bushes for another few years until we found the space on Summit and it matched exactly the length. So when we took the sign to have it restored, the S fell off in the middle. So it became top pot. But the idea was we still had the word zeitgeist. And then when I found this donut equipment, I showed my brother, I was like, we got to make donuts. It fits our everything. And I said, it's the only baked morning product that people feel they can buy 12 of them. <laughs> it's natural. So it's, <laughs> it's like you're going to buy a dozen, you know? Yeah. You're not going to buy 12 muffins or 12 cookies. You might for an event, but you'll go in and buy 12 donuts. That was just a side thing. I liked the equipment. I wanted to showcase it, but we didn't know how to make them. We were using recipes from all over. And my grandma, who had a little grocery store in Vermont called Klebeck Grocery, she would have donuts that she would sell. But the idea was that we wanted something that had very much an Americana effect. And then the machinery part was really important. And so when when I was asked to be part of the Mod Pizza experience, all it was was, okay, we thinking about doing something with pizza. And one of the people involved had an idea of process, which basically was fast food concept, build your own pizza. It'd have to be fast. There would be the oven there. And for me, I quickly went back to my days in Lakewood, Villa Plaza, where it's like, okay, we're going to use plastic. We're going to use kind of a seafoam green plastic, and we're going to do some cool lettering on the windows. I had this idea that I wanted to put the pizza in an envelope, just cheese pizza only. It's going to be a dollar. Sounds good. <laughs> and I got vetoed. But that was the genesis of the idea. Like, okay, if Subway was just starting and it was 1961, what would this feel like? Uh -huh. It'd be plastic, but cool plastic. Right. And it'd be this feel Feeling. There's a scene out of Breakfast at Tiffany's when Buddy Ebsen is getting on the bus at the Greyhound station. And if you look at that scene with the glass doors and the colors, that was very much like in my mind, okay, what we what we wanted to do. And so the molded plastic sign that said Mod Pizza, the green awning, the hand lettering, we would do hand lettering on a thick piece of glass and paint the same letter just slightly off register on the back and the front. And it created this three-dimensional, it was one of those happy accidents. And it went back to the idea that there's all these vintage crafts that aren't being done anymore. Mm -hmm. But one, people don't know how to do them. But there's this beautiful experience that happens when you sort of bring these things back. They were done for a reason. Everyone's like, well, vinyl's cheaper. It's mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, but it starts to peel. And is that the brand you want? A brand that starts to peel? Yeah. No. Or do you want it to have the old catcher's mitt effect? Years later, it's going to chip but people will be like, wow, that's real paint. And you know, some kid's gonna go, mommy, what's paint? The point is that you're creating these opportunities in the design. And then with Mod Pizza, it was something where I love the idea of repetition and speed. And we had gone through a ton of different ideas for names. And I was definitely into the mods when I was in high school. And I know Allie and Scott had this time in Great Britain and they really had that same sort of idea of the subculture, clean living, 
living under difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty neat to see that come together and create this kind of scooter vintage Italia effect, but for an American market. Wow. I'm just speechless. So oh, many things. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of thought from cinema too. It's, it's one of those things where if you look at my little books, every idea from the very beginning, like starting when I was at school at the UW, my art painting professor, Gene Pizzuto, who's passed away now, but he would force the students to keep a sketchbook. So I started doing that and they were really big at one time and they got condensed. Now they're, this is what they look like. So really can small. I take a peek? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things we asked Michael to do was to bring in some things for show and tell. And this is beautiful. How old is this book? That's just a couple years old. I make them myself. But Mies van der Rohe always said the most important thing is the idea behind everything. It's Mm -hmm. just the initial idea. And so these are really important to me because a lot of times it's not always the thing that pops out right away, but it's more of a free form of ideas and inspiration that I love being able to develop. And so the design details are really important to me. And it's, Mm -hmm. again, it can be just looking at a piece of furniture or the way the painting on the glass looks or a concept with a machine or building a cool little bungalow or, or space. Those are things that I want to try to preserve. So the sketching to me is my process of creating an idea, but all the early stuff, everything from the initial parts of Mod Pizza and Top Hot Donuts and Sun Liquor and all the little coffee shops and little jewelry shops, all the designs usually got their start with the sketches and the little ideas. And I bind them because they're important to me. They're all in pencil. Are these created? separately Easily. and then bound into this or is this no, no. a sketchbook I, I carry with you? Yeah. yeah. I bind it first and then that so you way- you make the sketchbook. Wow. And that way I can take them with me because a lot of times it's not like, oh, I'm going to start sketching. It's more like, oh, this idea. You know, I have this idea. I want to pursue it. And uh, and so that's that's always fun. I always say if the house burns down after the family comes out, I'm taking my sketchbooks. <laughs> They're beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And they're all different. Actually, they're all one of a kind. Yeah, I try to make them a little unique. So what extent does being in Seattle kind of shape your what you do and your brand? If it wasn't for my mom and my family, I'd be out of here. Just kidding. <laughs> No, I love but Seattle. It seems like there's a whole host of people oh, yeah. really, that are that are involved. And... You realize that there's people here that have, and all these people who've been here for decades. So it's interesting when you, if I go out where in the old days I could go out and see so many people I'd know. And now it's like, if you see someone you know, it's rare. And so it's nice to be able to have people who you can call and go, oh, you know this color. And they go, like, yeah, I got it. You know, and it's done. You don't have to go and try to revamp something that you've already spent a lot of time perfecting. And so one, it's it's expeditious in that sense, but also you're letting people sort of, especially in Seattle, which it's hard when you see places closed, like Daly's paint shop closed on Stoneway. Yeah. And you're either seeing companies move or close. And that's always hard because you're like, okay, I got to find a new supplier. I was getting this varnish from this company locally and couldn't get it anymore. So now I have to send away for it to California. And there's opportunities that pop up because you're you're seeing other ways to skin the cat, but I think it's nice when you can preserve the experience. So Seattle's changing so much. What do you have to be hopeful or what's like a bright light for you in the future? When you see that there's always this sense of, I think as you get older too, and, and you're an artist,
service or design like what I do, you're always worried, do people get it? Are mm -hmm. people still going to get it? Are the millennials and the, and the generations after them going to get it? And so when you see someone young have a, an experience that relates directly to what you do and how it affects them, and it's that smile, it's that, oh, this is so great. Those are definitely signs of, hey, this is going over the generations. This is something people will appreciate. My five-year-old, I, I will have high status that I spoke with you today when I let him know. <laughs> See, he's five. And, and I always say my two children, I use them as sounding boards all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what do you think about this? And it's great because you realize that even though you think it's changing dramatically and all these new people are coming in, people still get it. That's always what I see. Even though you might think, oh, I'm discouraged or I'm lacking faith in, in what's happening. At the end of the day, after all the trends come and go, it's still good design and, and you're putting the integrity behind it and people will get it. The kids are seeing it and they appreciate it. And that's very hopeful. Well, thank you for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to support EK on the go, please follow us on soundcloud.com forward slash EK group and share our podcasts far and wide. We'll have photographs of this 1928 Thai yearbook, a couple of Michael's sketchbooks, this beautiful box of Tapa Donuts and more. And those of you who stay tuned until now can participate in some delicious fun. I hope you like homemade donuts because we're giving away a book written by Mark Klebeck, Michael's brother. It's titled Top Pot Hand Forged Donuts, Secrets and Recipes for the Home Baker. The first person to send an email to edwardk at ekreg.com with a subject line, I want that donut, will get the book and you can start making your own donuts from the comfort of your home. Send your questions or requests to edwardk at ekreg.com as well. And if there's a place that matters to you in the area, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories. As always, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time to hear from others like Michael and about places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you.